Cliff, as history teachers, we often have the luxury of time, sometimes thousands of years, to properly assess and contextualize the events we teach. However, in this episode, we're tackling the history and media from only four years ago, 2018. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. The two of us discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and pop culture. I'm Ken. And I'm Cliff. In each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, television shows, and songs. In this show, we'll be discussing two blockbuster superhero movies, Black Panther and Avengers Infinity War. For television debuts, we're profiling Cobra Kai and Succession, and we'll be hearing the music of Drake, Childish Gambino, and a trio collaboration between Marin Morris, Gray, and Zed. Let's start us off with what we think were 2018's most important stories. 2018 was the year the Me Too movement snowballed into a global phenomenon. The Me Too movement had been around for a number of years before 2018, but it was really the Harvey Weinstein story in 2017 that accelerated the movement. In 2018, Weinstein was convicted on numerous charges and sentenced to 23 years in prison. Also in 2018, several states introduced legislation to deal with sexual harassment in the workplace, and even Congress finally moved to change the system for reporting harassment on Capitol Hill. 2018 was the year of a well-publicized special counsel investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 United States election, including links between associates of Donald Trump and Russian officials and possible obstruction of justice by Trump and his associates. The investigation resulted in charges against 34 individuals and three companies, eight guilty pleas, and a conviction at trial. In February 18, a 19-year-old student opened fire on students and staff at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, murdering 17 people and injuring 17 others. The gunman, a former student at the school, fled the scene on foot and was later arrested and convicted on 17 counts of first-degree murder. In May of 2018, the U.S. Department of Justice announced it had implemented a zero-tolerance policy, dictating that all migrants who cross the border without permission, including those seeking asylum, be referred to the DOJ for prosecution. It's estimated over 3,900 children were separated from families. Hundreds of these children were under the age of five. Cliff, the two films we're talking about today are Marvel superhero movies, and that's not a genre that either of us are in love with. However, we need to address the bigger story about why superheroes continue to be such a big populist draw. Let's start with the one that was the biggest box office success of 2018, Avengers Infinity War. This was the 19th film, Marvel Cinematic Universe. In this film, the Avengers gang hooks up with the Guardians of the Galaxy to prevent Thanos, the notorious villain, from collecting the six all-powerful Infinity Stones as part of his quest to kill half of all life in the universe. Saving humanity from extinction is definitely one of Marvel's go-to plot formulas. However, I do grant this film had an interesting twist in this respect, and we'll eventually get to that. Let's listen to a piece of the film's official trailer. There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more 
So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. In time, you will know what it's like to lose. To feel so desperately that you're right, yet to fail all the same. I distinctly remember going to see this on the big screen when it came out with my boys, and I remember being wowed by this big screen epic love it all, but it quickly became forgettable, like many of the Marvel superhero movies I've seen. I did go back and rewatch the film for this show, but here's the problem I have with this film, and basically all Marvel superhero movies. The stories become somewhat repetitive, predictable, and so dependent on understanding the interconnectedness of other Marvel stories and characters, I simply can't keep up. Yeah. This is how the comics are. Yeah. You, you've, you've got to keep reading the comics for the next series of comics to make sense. We've talked about superhero movies before, and I've heard you mention superhero films don't interest you because you're a, quote, an adult. And I would argue sometimes you're not even that. However, I'm going to challenge you. I did some research on the demographics of people that watch Marvel movies. The data was compiled by an independent group called Morning Consult, and they polled 2,200 U.S. adults back in November of 2021. Let's first address age. Baby boomers, of which I am, and Gen Xer, and that's you, Cliff, make up over 50% of Marvel fans combined. Baby boomers make up 26% and Gen Xers 25%. Millennials, those born between 1981 and 1996, make up 40%. And Gen Zers, those born between 1997 and 2012, make up just 9% of Marvel fans. So I'm not sure age is really that big a distinguishing factor among Marvel fans. No, and I get it. Despite what I've said on a previous episode about not being interested in superhero films because I am, quote-unquote, an adult, at least at times, your data does make a lot of sense. As the bulk of the superheroes featured in these Marvel movies were introduced to American culture back in the 40s and the 50s, the 60s, and the 70s. Namely, when baby boomers like you and Gen Xers like me were growing up. Yeah. There's something magical, uh, I think, in seeing a two-dimensional comic book character, especially when you're a kid, morph into this three-dimensional television or movie character. You know, it's like legend turned into reality. One of the theories about why the Marvel Cinematic Universe is so successful is the similar effect that people had with other big franchises like James Bond and Star Wars. This is the idea that you build an audience around a group of characters who are in a somewhat consistent setting and with storylines that are just variations of a central premise. One of the other factors we need to take into consideration when talking about the success of the Marvel franchise is economics. We can't avoid this. In 2009, just one year after the launch of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Disney purchased Marvel. And when a media mammoth like Disney gets a hold of anything, they're going to process it through the Disney marketing machine. And profit is pretty much inevitable. But I'm still fascinated with the question of why the current generation of, of Gen Zs and Gen Xers are so drawn to superheroes. When we covered the 2002 version of Spider-Man, it was easier to connect 9-11 to a superhero movie because the nation was in dire need of being saved. But it's been 20 years since then, Cliff. Why are people still so obsessed with superheroes at this point in the 21st century? Well, Ken, I would argue that we, the American people, are now more than ever before 
in desperate need of saving. Oh, okay. I like that. Where are you going with this? Consider. September 11th was an attack on American soil by foreign terrorists. January 6th, however, was an attack on American soil by American terrorists. Our former and could-be future president basically wants anybody who doesn't agree with him dead. Yeah. Our corporations, lobbyists, the politicians in Congress uh, they own want to take us back to the 1920s. And our Supreme Court, essentially, they, they seem to want to take us back to the antebellum era. Yeah. Like, Superman, where are you? Yeah, I mean, America is definitely <laughs> at, a, at a point of needing to be saved. So I, I, I think your point is extremely well taken. Right, but and, can I have, to, I have to say this? Okay. If the Avengers Infinity Wars is what being saved looks like yeah i'd rather be left to die as this was by far <laughs> the dumbest movie i have ever seen the fatal flaw of this movie is also what is supposed to be its greatest strength and that's the sheer number of superheroes and supervillains it contains like yeah. you said almost everybody in the marvel universe is in it yeah but therein lies the big problem if every one of these characters is basically invincible, right? They're superheroes. Yeah. Then how the hell can anyone win? Yeah. It's like mutually assured destruction without any destruction. All right, Cliff. We move from one Marvel superhero to another, although this one had a unique twist. It featured pretty much an all-black cast, including a black superhero. Black Panther was first developed by Stan Lee and his creative partner, Jack Kirby, back in 1966. Moviegoers got its first look at Black Panther in the 2016 film Captain America Civil War. Black Panther, the movie, was launched in January of 2018 with the late Chadwick Boseman playing the title role. In this film, T'Challa, Black Panther's actual name, is crowned King of Wakanda following his father's death, but he is challenged by Killmonger, played by Michael B. Jordan, who plans to abandon the country's isolationist policies, and begin a global revolution. Let's listen to a clip from the film's official trailer. I have seen gods fly. I've seen men build weapons that I couldn't even imagine. Uh-huh. I've seen aliens drop from the sky. Yeah. But I have never seen anything like this. How much more are you hiding? I waited my entire life for this. The world's gonna start over. I'ma burn it all. What happens now determines what happens to the rest of the world. I actually liked this film when I saw it in the theater. The all-black cast was a unique twist, but I actually think the story was pretty compelling, especially with Michael B. Jordan's great villain performance. You recently saw it for the first time, Cliff. What were your thoughts, and did this film do anything different other than the all-black cast twist than previous Marvel superheroes you have seen? Well, I only have seen now one other Marvel uh, superhero movie, and that was that uh, Infinity Wars we yeah. just talked about, so I can't really answer that question. Obviously, I thought it was head and shoulders. Head, shoulders, um, torso. torso, groin, thighs, <laughs> above Avengers Infinity Wars. Yes, the almost all-black cast was refreshing, but the fact that, that Black Panther was also the king of his people 
and that his uh, super superhero-ness, yeah. if you will, yeah. was hereditary and planned, not accidental. Yeah. It kind of tossed the whole superhero as everyday person slash outlier of society archetype on its head. Yeah. And I don't think in a really in a good way. Superheroes are supposed to operate like in the shadows. Right. Their true identities unknown. But right. the Black Panther, he operates right out there in the open. And everyone in Wakanda knows who he really is. I mean, it's the equivalent of George W. Bush, who was one time, remember he called himself the decider? Yeah. Imagine if he was actually a superhero called the decider. Okay, let's and, imagine. And that. he was the decider because George H.W. Bush, his father, was also a superhero called the decider. Right? And instead of wondering who that mask man is, we all just know that, oh yeah, that's just old W. We also need to acknowledge the political and cultural climate to better appreciate Black Panther. By 2018, the Trump presidency was two years old. We had witnessed the Charlottesville white supremacy rally the year before and Trump's support of both sides. Only a month before the movie's release, Trump referred to Haiti, a predominantly black populated nation, as a quote, shithole country. And he expressed a desire for immigrants from more white dominated nations. At the end of 2017, a majority of Americans, about 60%, claimed Trump's election had led to worse race relations, that according to a Pew survey. I don't think you really had to... I don't think the survey needed to sort of determine that. You didn't need Pew to go out there and determine that. (laughs) And then in January of 2018, this movie came along, which not only captured the pocketbooks of American filmgoers, but to a large extent, it captured the hearts and minds of many of them as well. This was a movie about what it meant to be black in both America and Africa. And it was largely a positive message. Its themes challenged institutional bias, its characters took obvious digs at racial oppressors, and black people came off as more advanced and cultured than previously depicted in film. I would argue that Black Panther is revolutionary in that it envisions a world not devoid of racism, but one in which black people have the wealth, technology, and military might to level the playing field. Cliff, any thoughts on this? Uh, Yeah, it is revolutionary, but it makes me really, really sad that we live in a country where an idea like this, that uh, black people having wealth, technology, military to level the playing, is that it's seen as such. Cliff, a number of years back, the famous film director Martin Scorsese got himself into hot water when he expressed his disdain for superhero movies. Let's listen to a clip from an interview with Scorsese as he attempts to explain his point of view that superhero movies have become the equivalent of cinematic theme park rides. They seem to be creating, it's another form. It's another form. And their theaters are almost like amusement parks in a sense. So these films now, I think, are more like theme rides in a way. And it's a different experience for an audience now. I think Scorsese's point of view is spot on. These are not serious films. They rarely make you think. They seldom expose you to other points of view uh, or ways of being. They're just entertainment, you know, pure and simple. As far as I can see, they do nothing but perpetuate the myth that the world is made up of good people and bad people and that and make gobs and gobs of money. I remember seeing the film uh, originally in the theater and just being wowed by the spectacle of it. And then when I rewatched it, only four years later, I could barely remember I had seen it before. In other words, like the spectacle of it and the fast pacing, we've also talked about this before, 
about the, this trend in the last 20 to 30 years in American movies is this barrage of action and fast cuts and music and pumping and, and, and Infinity War was relentless. Hey, it's time to move over to television, Cliff. Uh, there were two shows that debuted in 2018 that weren't necessarily mega hits. However, both shows said something very interesting about the state of television and American culture in 2018. Let's first tackle Cobra Kai, a show that I must confess I never saw until I watched the first episode and the only episode for this particular podcast. The show is a martial arts comedy drama series available exclusively on Netflix, and it's a sequel of sorts to the original Karate Kid films from the 1980s. The series jumps ahead 34 years after the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament. Johnny Lawrence, played by William Zapka, who you might remember lost to Daniel Russo, played by Ralph Macchio, seeks redemption by reopening the infamous Cobra Kai Dojo, reigniting his rivalry with a now successful Daniel LaRusso. Let's listen to a clip from the show's promotional trailer. I just don't know why you'd ever want to bring back Cobra Kai. We do not train to be merciful here. Mercy is for the weak. You may know the moves, but none of that matters unless you have balance. Are you ready to learn the way of the fist? Yes, sir! Johnny, you and I, this, we aren't done. One of the more compelling stories of Cobra Kai's success is that it started out on YouTube Red in 2018, a subscription service featuring original programming. However, it moved over to Netflix in 2020, and the first season was watched by 50 million member households in its first four weeks, making Cobra Kai the most streamed show on Netflix at the end of 2020 and early 2021. Obviously, something struck a chord with people at that time about Cobra Kai. Help shed some light on why that is, Cliff. Sure, I can do that. Um, turns out it's basically crack Yeah, uh, for somebody like me from my generation. Uh, and my sister-in-law, too, is just completely addicted to it. The Karate Kid movies um, were a big hit with kids growing up in the 80s, like myself, particularly boys. Um, after the first one came out in 1984, Ken, half the guys I knew signed up for karate classes, including my brother. I don't think I could ever stomach re-watching one of the old Karate Kid movies, um, but I love Cobra Kai. The premise is genius. Cheesy genius, to be sure, but genius nonetheless. In the 34 years since LaRusso beat Johnny Lawrence at the 1984 All-Valley Karate Tournament, we never once thought about what happened to Johnny Lawrence afterwards. And we weren't supposed to, right? Yeah, yeah. Ralph Macchio he, keeps going he on. He was and, the loser. Right, he was the loser, plus he was the bad guy. Yeah. Right? The Karate Kid movies were designed to be disposable bits of pop culture, just like one's high school prom or one's high school graduation. Mm -hmm. They're big deals at the time they occur, but you forget them almost immediately and you get on with your life, right? Yeah. You're not supposed to relive them. Right. But then Cobra Kai came along, and it reminded us that just because the film is over, or prom or graduation is over, that the story, just like our lives, goes on. Yeah. That's what high school reunions are for after all like cobra kai is one awesome high school reunion cliff i've heard people talk of this show in a similar way to that of the hbo hit ted lasso in that it offers 
uplifting empowerment in that it's possible for people to change. I find this idea really interesting in the context of a shifting popular sentiment in the type of TV shows people watch. I, I could see where it does, it would have that kind of power to uh, make other people feel good about, you know, the, the progress that a character makes mm -hmm. uh, in, in the show, particularly, obviously, Johnny is the, the is the big right, one that we're, right. we're supposed to be watching um, the progress. Amazingly enough, Ken, is that Ralph Macchio was so annoying as the Karate Kid through all the movies. In the originals? Yeah. Yeah. And, and he was annoying. I oh, thought my was... God. The whole show. It's all, been every, a long time. Every movie was just him going, Mr. Miyagi, I can't do that. Oh, there's no way I could do that, Mr. Miyagi. Mr. Miyagi saying, yes, Daniel son, you can do that. And then Ralph Macchio being able to do it. Yeah. He was just very annoying. Amazingly enough, 34 years later, grown up Ralph Macchio playing this, he's just as annoying. You, you actually, you're, you're a Johnny Lawrence fan. You're yeah. not, you're not a, a Ralph Macchio fan when you watch this. You are rooting for, of course, Ralph Macchio is progressing as a human being as well in this film, but you are, you're rooting for the, the William Zabka character right. of, of Johnny Lawrence. I, I just I'm overwhelmed and everyone I know who from my generation who has seen this who can't seem to stop watching it we are they're all overwhelmed by its unbelievable cheesiness which might make you wonder why are we all watching it yeah right but that's one of the reasons the show has been so successful I mean Americans not me but Americans they love cheese that's I mean, right and you don't like no, cheese no. Amer but Americans would bathe in it if, it, if they could. I love but, cheese. I had I mean, cheese this morning for breakfast. It's, it's it's one of those things. That's why I think there's a genius in this show is that it is so cheesy. It's uh, it's so it's awful. The, the show shouldn't even, it shouldn't I, even exist. I got I to gotta be honest. After watching the, the pilot episode, I was not endeared enough to want to binge it. However, the next show that we're going to be talking about is a show that I intend to binge. This next show, which debuted in 2018, Succession. Yeah. It is perhaps the most apt show for the Trump years and for the time and, in which and, it was yes. it happened. Yeah, right. Succession is a family drama series uh, created by uh, Jesse Armstrong. It centers on the Roy family, the dysfunctional owners of Waystar Royco, a global media and entertainment conglomerate who are fighting for control of the company amid uncertainty about the health of the family's patriarch, Logan Roy. Let's listen to a promo spot from season one. Everything I've done in my life, I've done for my children. I know I've made mistakes, but I've always tried to do the best by them because I love them. Have you thought about the possibility that your children are actually scared of you? Oh, fuck off. I want a broadcast network. I want to see what other news operations we can sweep up. Local TV? Dad, nobody watches TV. Why shouldn't we do all the news? Uh, well, Kim Jong Pop, because that's not how things work in this country. We have a major problem. He's erratic. He's making bad decisions. If he's not careful, he's going to destroy the company. Emily, are you going to do something? I think I'm the best option. Oh, right, because you like playing boss? This is my vision. I take over. You two, under me. Under you. Can we think about it? Yeah, of course. I thought about it. Fuck you. Cliff, let's not forget, this series came out about halfway into the Trump presidency, and I couldn't help but see some parallels with this show and Trump. In both cases, you have an ultra-rich, conservative, and elderly white dude who has built a dynasty of wealth and power, but has abused that power to monstrous effect. Would you say succession is an assault on capitalism, exposing the ultra-rich as just a bunch of 
white privileged phonies who are too caught up in their own power plays, lies, and immorality to recognize the actual reality of the world around them. Jesse Armstrong, the guy who created the show, uh, I'm going to give a quote here to answer what you just asked. It's He said, quote, It's a show reflecting how the world is, not how we would wish it to be. So, th- And so that's our territory. Yeah, I love that. Yes, it's an assault on capitalism. Yes, it's an assault on the ultra-rich. It's an assault on the, the white privileged folks. It's an assault on the conglomerates, the big media conglomerates. I mean, you just mentioned, we were, we've been talking about Disney, yeah. how Disney owns Marvel. Right. We have these huge corporations that own so much. And so this show is, it's definitely a show, as Armstrong points out, that is reflect, reflecting the world as it is. In watching this show, you can't relate to the material world of the characters, right. but the family is so messed up emotionally. Yeah, that they've, everyone can relate they, to a dysfunctional they, they family. All, they all have their own very distinct baggage that they're carrying yeah. in this family. My favorite moment of the first season of Succession came from the premiere episode. It's the scene when the family flies off in private helicopters to a Jake to play a game of softball. And at one point, uh, the one son of the patriarch Logan, Roman Roy, he solicits the young son of what appears to be the caretaker of this property to join them in their softball match. Roman, in true crass and exploitive Roy style, offers a million dollars to the kid if he hits a home run, going so far as to actually write a million dollar check and dangle it in front of the boy. The boy hits the ball, runs the bases, and just as he's about to touch home plate, he's tagged out. No! Bad luck, kid. No! Oh, no! You were so damn close. That was so close. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's so sad. Oh, I'm sorry. I can't give it to you. That would have counted, by the way. That was almost a home run if you went all the way around. But it was a really good effort. Really. Quite tremendous. So take this back to your life it's a quarter million enjoy this was such a powerful scene for me and it painted a perfect metaphor for capitalism and set such a perfect tone for this series a working class kid gets a chance to enter the game and we can certainly replace capitalism with the game here and there is possibly a big payoff at the end it's like monopoly I started doing some research on that and a lot of people find parallels with Monopoly and Succession. I find that interesting. And and get this, I love how the patriarch, Logan, comes over to the dejected boy afterwards, shakes his hand and comforts him by saying, magnificent effort. The white wealthy elite are in and will always be in control, dangling the notion of opportunity to the lesser classes. The working class gave it their best shot only to be denied in the end, leaving the white wealthy elite still in control when you get to the point where somebody like logan roy who owns a company who owns a bunch of other companies that influences pretty much everything we hear and see and Mm -hmm. and and, and believe that is something completely different that is the end product that only a few people in the capitalist structure can ever get to the one percenters yeah the one percenter Ain't got no riches, ain't got no money that runs long, but I got a heart to stone, and a love to 
Hey, let's talk about the music of 2018. First of all, streaming music services like Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon Music surpassed 50 million paid subscriptions, and the U.S. music industry experienced its third year of consecutive growth. By the end of 2018, music streaming accounted for 75% of total industry revenues. I'm all about music streaming, but for old guys like us, Cliff, it is still so weird to think that I don't physically own the music I listen to. I mean, this is something that we so took for granted through the years. Touching a vinyl album, popping in a cassette or a CD, that idea is is irrelevant. We don't own our music anymore. The first two songs we're going to talk about have one big thing in common. They were released along with two very popular and very controversial music videos. The first song was the number one single from 2018, and that was God's Plan by Drake. I don't want to die for them to miss me. Yes, I see the things that they wish you know me. Cliff, as you know, I'm not a contemporary rap guy. I'm definitely more old school. As am I. Yeah, Public Enemy, Tupac. I have found contemporary rap to either be too generic and unoriginal, like this song, or too urban and offensive to truly appreciate. I remember my then 18-year-old playing this song often, and it sort of had this generic beat that was kind of likable, but when you dissect the lyrics... There's not much there. I'm not even sure you can call this rap, Ken. I've never heard Drake before. I've heard the kids talk about Drake for years. And this so, was the first time you ever heard a Drake yeah. song. And so I'm listening to this and I'm like, there's, it's, I mean, yes, there's rhyming, but I, it's not a lot of tight rhymes. It's almost like Drake's doing more talking yeah. than, you know, as the kids say, spitting bars. I mean, he's, he's really not... And I think that is part of Drake's appeal is that he is not necessarily your uh, gangster rapper. He's not one of those sort of prophetic Kid Cudi, J. Cole rappers. You need to have songs like this where somebody can just talk about real things yeah. in a real way that a lot of us can at least, I don't have to be a gangster and I don't have to fuck right. a lot of hoes. Yeah. yeah. You know, I can be a normal person and go, oh. Yeah, I understand Drake. Yeah. Not that there's much here. However, Drake did release a music video of this song that garnered a lot of attention and controversy. Throughout the video, Drake hands out free money, almost a million bucks to a variety of people um, over the streets of Miami, telling shoppers in a supermarket that everything on the shelves was free, presenting a scholarship check to an unsuspecting student, and giving to a woman at a shelter. I admit, it's generous. But there was also something about that video that didn't sit well with me. I get the idea that God's plan is random and uncertain, and that sometimes you can be sitting in the park with your family and some dude comes by and hands you a fistful of cash, although I pretty much think that's only happened in a Drake video. But the fact that Drake had cameras rolling in order to vote his music and the idea that he's some great humanitarian that people should admire and look up to just seemed way too contrived yeah, and disingenuous. That, that calling attention to your to yourself doing something good. Yeah. If it happens, someone catches you doing good, great. But it's that I, those people that always want to, like the fact that he made a video yeah. and that this is what he based the video on, dude, just go out and give the money away. Yeah. The other song from 2018 that featured a controversial video was Childish Gambino's This Is America. We just want to party, party just for you. We just want the money. Childish Gambino, by the way, is the musical stage name for Donald Glover. He's an actor that was in the show Community uh, and also in a more recent show, Atlanta. The song is a scathing 
I mean scathing indictment of both gun violence and racism and discrimination in the United States. The song debuted at number one on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100, and it became Gambino's first top 10 hit. But it was the video that Gambino released to promote the song that generated the most controversy. Gambino and the director of the video, Hiro Mure, Japanese-American uh, director, they didn't hold back from showing provocative imagery of Gambino as he ruthlessly shoots a hooded man in the head, machine guns down an entire choir while basically smiling, and dances while violence breaks out all around him. It's an amazing song and an amazing video, and it's one that I have had students analyze several times now uh, over the years in my American Studies class. Yeah, and I'm curious about your students' reaction to this video. They, I mean, they, they do a good job on it because, you know, one of the things that I have to do as an English teacher is you got to point out the fact that what a text is and the fact that there are two texts. Mm -hmm. There's the song, that's one text, right. and then there's the song played over the video, which is a different text. And the Kids really do react to it because I think what they what they find first of all is we know I'm not hip I'm old white to them mm -hmm. right and in when this song came out in 2018 it was my American Studies students who played it for me oh okay they were the one to turn you on they to turned it. it on to me and then I didn't have it as an assignment or anything they just said you've got to watch this and we watched it and then we ended up having this wonderful discussion about it you know then they they really respond to it. and the other thing is is this is this song as I, you can imagine, Ken, this this shouldn't be my jam. Yeah, like, this it is, is contradictory to your rock soul. But it is. It starts out with that happy major mode of choral singing that we associate with South African choral yeah. singing. This, yeah, 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 go away. And then all of a sudden, boom, the, the hammer comes down on the yeah. song. And it gets dark and crazy fast. Will Gompertz, who's the arts editor of the BBC, asserted that This Is America was a powerful and poignant allegorical portrait of 21st century America, which warrants a place among the canonical depictions of the United States of America from Grant Wood's American Gothic to Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, from Emmanuel Lutz's Washington Crossing to the Delaware to America the Beautiful by Norman Lewis, that it, it essentially has a place among these classic American iconic pieces cultural of art. Uh, icons of art. You're, um, you're a damn good teacher. I am Cliff. an awesome teacher. Yeah, 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 <laughs> go away. Take a seat. Right over there, sat on the stairs, stay leave. This song, The Middle, was a collaboration between three artists, Marin Morris, Zed, and Gray. For whatever reason, 2018 was the year of collaborative hits. Seven of the top ten Billboard singles from 2018 were collaborations, including those from such acts as Florida Georgia Line, Camilla Cabello, Post Malone, Cardi B, and even Elton John did a song with Young Thug. Supposedly, there were a variety of high-profile female singers who were auditioned for this song, including Camilo Cabello and Carly Rae Jepsen and Demi Lovato, but it was Marin Morris who were in the spot, and the result was a mega hit. It reached number five on Billboard Hot 100 and surpassed one billion streams on Spotify, the first song to do so for all three artists. How many streams have we had? 
we're we're in the high dozens. <laughs> I don't want to overanalyze the lyrics of such a fluffy pop song because this is not the song to do that. But I do want to put the song into the context of 2018 because the middle wasn't a place that many Americans were in at that time. Don't forget, we're halfway through the Trump presidency and a very polarized nation with disparate sides politically, ideologically. It was and still remains a a pretty screwed up country. The idea of finding middle ground virtually had no place in America and people seemingly hardened on one side or the other. So although this song was calling for finding middle ground in a personal relationship, I couldn't help but think how the themes of this song applied to a larger story that was happening in America in 2018. I mean, here's the problem with the middle and as an ideal. On some ideas and issues, there really is no middle ground. Mm -hmm. It's all wonderful to think about compromise, right? The reason why we're so divided is because the issues that we are paying attention to are the ones that are kind of an either or. Yeah. Um, I have a question that is a little less serious about your question about the middle. Yeah. You say this song was a collaboration, right? Yeah. If so, where the hell is Zed and Gray? And and not to mention, who the hell are Zed and Gray? <laughs> well, Zed uh-huh. is one of the most famous DJs and music producers on planet Earth, Cliff. Okay, wait, there was a DJ with this song? Yeah, I mean, he's putting down the musical he, bed. He, he laid down the bed. And Gray yeah. is an American electronic music duo consisting of two brothers. They actually also collaborated on the songwriting and I think did some instrumentation and I think some harmonies in the background. Time to reveal our personal favorite entertainment release from 2018. I'm going to go first. I picked the film The Sisters Brothers. Yay! Which stars John C. Riley and Joaquin Phoenix as the notorious assassin brothers Eli and Charlie Sisters. It was based off of the 2011 novel of same name by Patrick DeWitt, which you should definitely check out. A fairly quiet Western set in California in 1851, the film was a box office bomb. It's a rather touching film Mm -hmm. about brotherhood, both the familial kind and the societal one. And I highly recommend it and the novel. I pick the song Crazy Classic Life by the artist Janelle Monet from her remarkable record, Dirty Computer. Dirty Computer is a wildly eclectic record incorporating pop, funk, hip-hop, R&B, and neo-soul. The record had four hit singles, but not this song for some reason, which is my favorite off the record. Crazy Classic Life is at once a celebration of humanity and kind of a lookout for people lost to inhumanity. Monet's lyricism shines throughout the song, shifting effortlessly from sung vocals to rap, from joyous freedom to incisive criticism. Hey, well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in this episode, the history, films, music, and TV discussed, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. There you will find links to additional reading, Spotify song lists, letterbox lists, and an opportunity to contact us about what you like and don't like about the show. In next week's show, we cover the year 1949. Cliff and I will discuss the films All the King's Men and The Third Man, the television debuts The Goldbergs and The Lone Ranger, 
and we'll hear music from Vaughn Monroe, Louis Jordan, and the great Hank Williams. Please share Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff with your friends and family, Zed and Gray, whoever the hell they are. You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. <laughs>